0: This podcast is called Obsessed, Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest, get some secrets off their chest, you should listen, it's the best!
1: Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw, I'm sitting in my home with a great returning guest, she's a singer, a songwriter, a comedian, and many other wonderful nouns, it's Molly Lewis. It's me! I'm so happy that you're here and back for a couple reasons. Because you're always on the podcast. Because you <laughs> recorded the opening song
0: from the past.
1: And one of our most popular episodes, I think, second or third most popular episode, is a uh, bullet journals mm-hmm. that that we did together. Yeah, yeah. And people, I think you saved some people's organizational lives <laughs>
0: with that episode. <laughs> I regret to. I've fallen off the the bullet journal system a little bit, but it's still. I'm still a uh, a bullet journal stan.
1: Okay. Uh, is there anything that happened in particular to make you fall off of it? Or was it uh, anything? Yeah.
0: No, I mean, it was true. It was just a uh, I f- would forget to carry the dang thing around. Okay. You can't put bullet journal in the cloud yet. I'm trying to figure that out.
1: Okay, so when you can cloud bullet journal. Yeah, we'll the do cloud a- Joe. <laughs> the cloud Joe. Right. <laughs> we'll do another episode for cloud <laughs> Joe. Uh, I've been asking people about their nouns in terms of like what they do do because so many people Mm -hmm. that I know do a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and then I you know go through my own memory or the internet for like what do I think the nouns are but I like checking with people Mm -hmm. how they're thinking of themselves
0: yeah and uh, I I like knowing people's pronouns that's really great and I love when people my pronouns are she her by the way listener Um, but yeah I feel like you also need to know nouns for that to be important Um, I feel like I am a songwriter musician I describe myself as just an overall millennial hyphenate. Um, (laughs) Content creators in there. Okay. Um, I'd be an influencer if I got paid for that, but I don't.
1: (laughs) You're willing to be an influencer.
0: Yeah. uh, On and off podcaster. It's it's all all coming together.
1: Okay. And for you, is that uh, do you like being able to do lots of different things and wear lots of different hats? It, or does it sometimes feel a little like you're pulled in different directions?
0: Uh, there's, I think, something kind of in my genetic memory that, you know, sort of when I was in grade school, it was like, well, the college you get into will determine the job that you get, and then that'll determine, like, how nice your burial plot is or whatever the end game was. <laughs> was that really clear on that?
2: Yeah. Um,
0: and so I still feel like I need to kind of put all my eggs in a single basket, and having friends who also make content, it's, I, I, it's and that's the thing. It feels like... You can either, content creators, either a serious job title or, like, really snar- a really snarky way to put it, depending <laughs> entirely on your tone. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of freeing to be able to not wear out one single lobe of your brain, but to kind of wear them all out evenly, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a it's really like, good way
1: to say it. Like, it's like
0: rotating the tires on your car a little bit, but for <laughs> your brain.
1: Rotate your brain tires. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it as... Even if it might be confusing to us from certain perspectives, it's kind of healthy for us as humans to use lots of different skills Mm -hmm. and see ourselves as more than one thing. But when you were talking about just going to college, getting a job, my mind flashed to I think it was a Grover sketch on Sesame Street. I might be misremembering, but I think it was Grover would spin and turn into different professions. Mm. It, it was a, like, self-empowering, you can be anything. And he'd, like, turn and become a firefighter and then a police officer. Yeah, the gig and then economy. baker, <laughs> fully yeah. Fully
3: predicted by Grover.
1: <laughs> now I'm just imagining Grover spinning and going, I create content.
0: Oh, I Whatever three, that means. <laughs> I, I 300%, like, change costumes in my house depending on what I, <laughs> this is my email answering bib.
1: <laughs> yes, we have to put on it. This is my uh, slack pants.
0: <laughs> my slack slacks.
1: My slack slacks. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So, let's get into uh, this obsession we're going to talk about. Uh, We had a a fun conversation at DragonCon where you were like, hey... Uh, I, I hear you, Joseph, sometimes talk about comedy theory stuff. I like comedy th- theory stuff. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Maybe was, on a podcast.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of invited myself on. Oh. Like, hey, you have a format for talking about things <laughs> in a structured and directed manner, and I'm all about structure and direction. <laughs> Let's do this.
1: All right. Well, it's a yeah. structure and direction our way into comedy theory. So I just want to start with the basic. For, for me, when I say comedy theory, I just mean analyzing comedy and thinking about how it works in what the purpose is, who is the target of the joke, how is an idea communicated, and just, like, functionally, why does a joke not work in certain contexts or work in other contexts, all that kind of structure, function, uh, stuff. For you, do you – have you always liked analyzing comedy? Has it always been a joyful thing?
0: It's It's just been sort of a reflexive thing. Like, it's just a thing that I – It's a thing I learned from my dad, how to parry social anxiety through jokes. And so I've been thinking a lot lately about what my relationship to comedy is and also have noticed um, that I've developed my understanding of the world and have gained context of the world around me through jokes. Like I was, uh, you know, a child during, say, the the second bush election you know and bush bush versus gore and i wasn't old enough to vote but i got a sense of it from snl skits (laughs) you know and i um i watched mst 3k as a kid and a lot of that is jokes about sort of the broader culture but i basically gave me this bingo card of like the kind of people i like like these things and been thinking a lot about how like i get a lot of my news from comedians and how it's it's just a it's has sort of a deeper influence in my life than I realize. And I've never really thought to sort of ask why and what role it plays. And um, and I do think a lot about how we process, like, what is it that, there's sort of the, to put it in like a joke form, <laughs> there's uh, how, the physicist asks, why does it work? The engineer asks, how does it work? And the philosopher asks, would you like fries with that? <laughs> <laughs> and those are kind of the different, you know, there's, why, why do we laugh, and then how is a joke put together, and why do, like, sort of what purpose does comedy serve? There's sort of the analytic, synthetic, sort of theoretic layers to it. And it's all very interesting to me, and I remember we were on tour, and you said it's in conversation somewhere that... You had studied comedy theory. And I went, of course, that's a field of study. <laughs> of course, somebody smarter than me has thought about this for longer. And I could just find out who those people are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I took uh, two classes in college. One in particular was just comedy theory. Uh, yeah. And that, that was all great and where a lot of the things that I have held on to and, and thought about. And then I've done various uh, panels and workshops and that and just really used it as a framework to think not only about comedy and jokes, but like yourself, life. Of like because jokes can be a guide to not only do how we handle uh, social situations, but how we handle power structures and how we handle just different forms of communication that comedy can be a language where like you can say something really clearly. like philosophers don't often, Apply their work to a practical solution that affects actual outcomes. Yeah, and instead, you can tell the very funny joke that you did, and you're saying the same thing, but just in the language of comedy. Right. Yeah. So I got very obsessed with all that. And along the way, uh, I discovered well, from the 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 teacher of the first comedy theory class I took, when when he would like show a commercial from Saturday Night Live or share an old an old joke. And everybody in the class would laugh and enjoy it, and he'd say, "That's great. Let's laugh. Let's enjoy it." And then he'd say, "All right, time to take out the million-pound shit hammer." <laughs> and he was trying to make a joke about the fact that it was that a lot of people don't think it is fun to dissect comedy. That they think, you know, there's that. Uh, I'm paraphrasing that, but like, you know, it's like dissecting a joke is like uh, dissecting a frog. You'll kill it, you know. And I've met a ton of people who are like, "Go, go being." college smarty pants person if you want to analyze comedy but <laughs> yeah. we're actually here, we're here doing it. I, it do you feel like you are naturally an analytical person that it would be in your nature to say I I want to swing the million pound shit hammer. That sounds like fun.
0: Yeah, and I I think I think you've talked on on this podcast about how there are people that are entertainers because they just kind of like to be the center of attention, and then there are people that are drawn to comedy because they're kind of broken or cynical in some way, <laughs> and they need comedy to kind of put some frosting on that garbage cake that they just live with always. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've always been like I've. I can't, I can't even think of the earliest example as to, like, I figured out Santa and the Tooth Fairy on my own. Like, that okay. kind of thing of just like, well, that doesn't, Santa couldn't fly that fast. Nothing flies that fast. Why hasn't the government kidnapped Santa and taken a sleigh apart to figure <laughs> out how it works? You know, just kind of the sort of structural consistency of my world was important to me. Um, and, yeah, and that's, I think, why, because so much of my personal and social life is bound together by comedy. And now sort of my political understanding is through sort of people joking about it on Twitter. right? Yeah,
1: but Um, it is your natural mindset to not go from an emotional perspective of, I wonder if the magic of Santa could be true. I wonder if my parents are lying. You found the plot holes in the Santa mythos. For sure, yeah. (laughs) Which is fascinating to me about just like uh, people who I think are a little bit more open to looking at that world that way. Mm-hmm. of just adding everything up and seeing if, if it makes sense.
0: Yeah, I wish. if anything, I wish I could relax more. It doesn't <laughs> seem that I can.
1: <laughs> well, does comedy help you relax, just enjoying comedy? Or do, when you're watching comedy, do you always analyze this? Or do, can you sometimes just sit back and go, hey I enjoyed that?
0: That's actually something I wanted to ask you, because you have sort of the vocabulary to, uh, you sort of understand the different sort of tension and the different sort of opinions kind of swinging around. Um, if you have to check out a part of your brain to to consume comedy sometimes like like i imagine like you know because i'm a musician by trade or at least i tell people that i'm sitting next to on planes <laughs> that that's what i do um but you know i definitely it's hard for me to listen to the lyrics of music on the radio because there is that section of like either they didn't execute that well or i could have executed that better there's yeah. competing like oh that doesn't really rhyme or that's a slant rhyme and i don't think You know, firework and colors burst, don't rhyme, Katy Perry, or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, And I'm, and knowing sort of my, um, just whatever piece of gristle my brain can find to chew on will do that contrary to anything productive I should be thinking about. Um, If I learn too much uh, of the vocabulary of comedy, that it'll, that that I'll just kind of tear apart the things I enjoy. But that doesn't seem to be, you definitely, I know you'd be a student of comedy, but also. Uh, uh, not consumer. I don't want to use that oh, word because it sounds dirty. <laughs> I but buy you, comedy. You do enjoy. You do enjoy comedy still. It's absolutely, rare.
1: absolutely. And I, for me, I think a couple different analogies. I don't. I I play the drums, but that was because uh, I'm not good at other kinds of music. I don't have a good ear for music, uh, tone deaf, and all those kind of things. But I feel like, yeah, just because a musician can say, like, I absolutely know what key that is and what scale that is, and I understand, like, that the normal emotional uh, context. Of that chord change means X. I think people who can do that can still rock out to a song that they like. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's now it isn't like I am always analyzing it and almost even rating it. It's more like the for me, and this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, which I don't mean to. <laughs> but it's like in the Matrix when Neo can see the code running behind everything. Right. It's in, and I've heard other people make that uh, analogy about about many things that they do professionally. Like, you know, if an architect walks into a building, they're like, this is really well designed. That's the supporting beam. Don't knock that one over, you know, (laughs) because they can see the structure behind the structure. Yeah, And that's the way I feel about it. And I think sometimes I get, I think the only way it affects me is I get a little bit more opinionated about comedy because I have opinions about, well, the structural support beam of that very funny joke is that, you know, men should always be masculine. And then I can't enjoy that joke anymore, even if I think structure-wise, delivery-wise, it's really great on the surface if you just go, it's just a joke. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's not just a joke because those zeros and ones running the code add up to this meaning.
0: Right. And for the joke to work, everybody has to agree that that structural beam of like women be different than men is true. Right. Even if it's not
1: explicitly said Mm -hmm. that... There's cult- there's so many cultural agreements that are implicit in jokes.
0: Right, right. It seems, I think I tried to read uh, some joke, some comedy theory, and then realized, like, sort of universe brain meme. Like, it's just, <laughs> there's so many directions. Um, but I think Freud quoted somebody who said that jokes are a playful judgment. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting, because, yeah, it, that's why I think I was able to sort of glean, like, oh, people don't take Ross Perot seriously as a candidate, was... For the joke to scan, we had to agree that the assertion in the middle of it was true.
1: Right, right. That, and then, and like, with that, back in the day, because I, I loved that Ross Perot character on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I think was young enough at the time that, for me, he was exciting because he was... He wasn't one of the big two. He was outside of the system, and I think that is that was fun often back then. attractive. <laughs> yeah, not so. I yeah, I think maybe that uh, that attraction has been broken. But I mean, we're still seeing that, uh, and I'm not making any big political judgments. But we're still seeing that exact same kind of excitement around Andrew Yang
0: because mm-hmm. he is
1: outside of the system, right. and I think there is something you know rewarding to people about being outside of the system. But to relate it to comedy, Saturday Night Live is not only making fun of Ross Bro for some of the actual like weird things he said. Mm-hmm. But there is some comedy just implied in he is outside the system. We all know normal is Republican and Democrat. So somebody who is not Republican and Democrat is therefore a little bit of a punchline automatically. Right. Because they're the straight line and he's a curvy line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have the set up straight line and the curvy line. And Ross Pro is the, the crazy curvy line mm-hmm. of comedy. You know? Yeah. Which uh, I think to your point about Galaxy Brain of like, well, you can analyze a joke, but then you can analyze like, okay, well, how much... You can look at something like, like the Ross Pro and just go, like, the guy says weird things. Mm-hmm. His voice is kind of funny. The impression is spot on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's making fun of this funny guy. Or you can go all in and go, like, well, no, this is Saturday Night Live. This is allegedly alternative mm-hmm. comedy show supporting the structure that Republican and Democrat is normal and anything outside of it is weird.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: Uh, so I think, I still think there's subjectivity within it a lot too. Um, but I, I, I want to start drilling into some specific theories cause I'm really curious to see what you think about them and how they apply to your understanding of comedy. Uh, so the first one is one that I have, that I've gleaned from lots of different places, but I think about a lot. It's kind of what we we're just talking about. Just the bias that all comedy functions on contrast that for all kinds of comedy, There is a straight line and a crazy, curvy line. And we can see that really obviously when there is just a a traditional joke that has a setup line and then there's a punchline, something that sets up expectations. Yeah. Like, you know, the engineer and the other profession in your joke set up Mm -hmm. the straight line for the philosopher to do the crazy wavy arms line. Yeah. Uh, And I think that we can all accept that when it's a traditionally spoken joke with a setup in a punchline. But my ongoing understanding of comedy, particularly when it gets weird, mm-hmm. is that we have these cultural agreements that we're not even aware that we have invested in mm-hmm. that create the setup line for a bunch of our punchlines. And those are the things that sometimes I get concerned watching or concerned for myself of like, do I want to agree that that is the baseline?
0: Yeah. there's. I think about that a lot with... Um, like a couple times, sort of publicly, I have seen comedians have to defend their jokes on something like Twitter, some open forum, yeah. Um, and they always kind of fall back on the, "Well, I meant it as a joke. I didn't, I didn't say this to injure. I didn't say this to punch down. It was intended to be a joke." Um, but the idea of, you know, the Steve Allen comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah. Um, I looked into that a little bit, and a year after he had first put that out, he said um, he added that comedy is tragedy plus time plus the will to be amused.
1: Interesting. Right. <laughs> Just and interesting that he changed it he after changed time. It.
0: and nobody, right? Comedy strategy plus time, plus edit, edit, edit. <laughs> plus a little bit of reflection. Plus and some, uh,
1: some DLC content that uh, changes <laughs> so, the original that, meaning of this you, famous quote.
0: You got that Steve Allen DLC? Yeah, bro. <laughs> um, but I think that's, it's really interesting that he thought to add that, because I do think that there is... I've been thinking about, like, there's this... Co- like, jokes to some extent require consent. They require the consent of the party receiving the yes. joke. Or or assent, maybe, is what I mean to say. Yeah. You need to agree that, like, we're all kind of in just a playful space. And this is, we're just kind of kicking around balloons here. um, And that there's sort of the two-factor authentication thing required for <laughs> jokes, right? Yeah. Like, you have to, if you say a thing and it's received as funny, great, a joke has taken place. But if you say a thing and the other person goes, I don't agree that women be different than men, <laughs> then... Can I? It's this weird sort of like. Did a joke happen, or was a joke just attempted? You know, and right. like if so, if you say if I say something, and I actually thought about this when we were setting up for this conversation because you asked how I felt about turning thirty, and I said that. You know, I could tell as a kid that grown-ups were sad to not be young anymore, so I decided not <laughs> to get too attached to youth. Yeah. And you – I didn't intend that as a joke, but you laughed. And I went, oh, yeah, okay, I guess a joke took place. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, but there's this weird sort of metaphysical – like, it has – people have to agree that a joke has happened. Yeah. And, like, yeah. to me,
1: like, my mind – and this is, this is what I like to think about in terms of analyzing this contrast idea. Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that we laugh at and then even – Go. I don't know why I laughed at that, and then it's it's a fun uh, exercise if you have this kind of brain to ask yourself where what uh, set up lines that I think are just interior to my understanding of culture right. caused a contrast for me to laugh at that. Yeah, and one being that that is a precocious view for a child, for like for a child to look at adults with that level of emotional understanding is like. That that if you set it up in in like comedy contrast, would be like two young kids walk into a room. One says, "I want a Snickers bar." The other says, "I notice that adults
0: are emotionally affected by age."
1: <laughs> <laughs> then you yeah. have an actual setup line, right? Uh,
0: or just the idea of a child giving up. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, it, there's also just like. Um, I guess I guess I don't know exactly where the contrast is but just like the wisdom of it there's something funny to me about I guess visualizing that as a joke of like young molly uh has two doors she opens one and it, one is full of 40-year-olds weeping Closes that door the other one is just a big sign that says accept it and everything in there is happy <laughs> and she goes I'll go in that door I'll go in that door yeah you know and it's just it's taking i, I think wrestling with big ideas of the truth of humanity yeah. and then turning them into this is one way we could look at it this is the other way we could look at it and smashing them together
0: yeah. is it contrast or is it surprise
1: I think surprise is a necessary part of how jokes actually are successful right right because uh, oftentimes when I've like discussed this with other comedians they're like I don't buy the contrast thing. Because you can't just put two things together. And, like, sometimes, especially at the height of At Midnight, when they had the hashtag games, right? Yeah, You'll yeah, yeah. see on Twitter, of just like, here, it, uh, peanut butter and a falcon. Like, uh-huh, those are two things <laughs> that you put together to try to make this hashtag work. Mm-hmm. But there isn't surprise. There isn't anything with more sort of meaning or oomph behind it. Mm-hmm. So I think that you, you do need that level of surprise. Right. But just functionally... uh, this is one of the things that uh, was communicated to me in that first class uh, class I took is that very old joke, and I think I saw actually Mickey Rooney talking about it the like almost stereotype of what an old joke is is why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side right Mickey Rooney's like it killed in the day like because <laughs> right? there was a time where that was a surprise if a bunch of vaudeville people were like that's a setup for all you know a big anecdote. Uh, coming up with crazy reasons why a chicken would want to cross the road. And then when you look at that ancient creaky joke to us, well, the first time it was said, it was probably like this very postmodern <laughs> surprise. Right. Just go, I'm going to give you the actual answer <laughs> yeah. instead of the twisty comedy answer you expect. Yeah. So when I think of surprise, I just think of um, growing cultural
0: change. Right, sort, sort of the reinvention of, and and they, it, yeah, if if your audience is conditioned to expect, like, a whole story about why the chicken might have been motivated to cross the road, and then just you give them the most obvious answer. Yeah, it yeah. suddenly
1: breaks expectation. But in terms of, the, of your idea about surprise, th- that joke is not surprising to us. It is the oldest, dumbest joke that we it's can a temp- imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think, like, when I first got here to Los Angeles about five years ago and I was doing and going to a lot of stand-up shows, I really started to notice that the thing that audiences really responded to was anything that was based in real life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Even if a comedian was having a really rough time, if the audience was really cold, if they went from kind of a prepared, set-up, joke about a bad Tinder experience or whatever— mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as they segued from any sort of joke structure and just got into telling a story of an interaction they actually had and like a strange thing that a person actually did instead of sort of a fabricated Tinder witticism, the real thing almost always got response. Hmm. And I think that's because I was seeing audiences that go to comedy a bunch. And so that uh, any, any amount of like surprise or openness to being surprised at a joke structure like as soon as people could sense a joke structure they're like a joke is coming but it's like here's <laughs> yeah. an interaction i had with a real person that there's no way you could predict this insane thing that you know this person brought their own bottle of peanut butter to the restaurant and when they're asked for ketchup they said no I'll, I'll put peanut butter on it then suddenly the audience woke up because they knew it was sincerely new
3: mm-hmm.
0: and
1: therefore a surprise yeah rather than a structured joke
0: yeah and a lot of uh, stand up in particular is seems to be rooted in uh, like identity there's like a lot of identity comedy yeah um and i don't have i don't have experience in the stand up world so i'm not sure why that would be um and but it, and also i think it's interesting that a, a sort of experienced comedy audience would seek like the least joke like thing
1: <laughs> i don't think anybody knew that they were like in fact a lot of times people will go like i didn't i didn't really like that it was more storytelling than stand up can be a sure. bias yeah. In the stand-up community. But that's what I kept observing. And I think it was just about truth. Mm-hmm. I think it is just about we are so inundated with anything that looks like a joke structure that that there's that fear of uh, of a, uh, an I see what you did there reaction. Right. We have an I see what you did there culture right now. So mm-hmm. I think people are craving the surprise that you were talking about.
0: Yeah. Well, and there's... The, the other thing, like when I was trying to do, before I sort of got in, went, oh, this is too many weeds, don't have time to get into these weeds, it seemed that there's there's the study of jokes, what makes jokes work. And under the sort of umbrella of jokes, there are gags and bits, which are separate <laughs> sort of structures, and then there's what is humor, what is comedy, what is the comic, yeah. you know? There's all these different kind of, uh, these these different terms that are because like, Freud has a whole book about jokes, yes, which I started to read, and then the first thirty pages were him just mansplaining portmanteaus to me, <laughs> which I did not have time for.
1: You are a portmanteau master, so yes.
0: <laughs> and they were all like German portmanteaus that did not translate into English either, so it was one of those you know you had to be there kind of kind of books.
1: <laughs> I had to be in Germany to get this joke. <laughs> I had
0: to be in Austria in the thirties
2: to understand what was
0: happening here. Yeah. Um, but like what is like, what is a gag versus a bit versus a joke? Like how do how do you – are are they all sort of subspecies of joke or are they
1: – Yeah. I mean for me I think that gets almost more into the sort of a, a technical who like, is constructing the comedy for who. Like mm-hmm. I know a lot of other people who would maybe have strong opinions about that. Mm-hmm. But to me they're a little bit like discussing like what's the difference between a nerd and a geek? Sure. And a pop okay. culture obsessive that like – a gag in a bit, to me, like, they suggest, like, that they have, that they're rooted in tradition, that there's maybe something specifically physical to it yeah. or has a relationship to even, like, vaudeville, whereas, mm-hmm. like, I think when people say a joke, they think mostly verbal, uh, you know, yeah. a, a gag in particular, uh, or shtick, which is a word I like a lot, Ooh, really yeah. does have, uh, you know, a connection to the physical Yeah, into something that would be more like that I, and i think there's also uh there it, we are so capable of meta levels of comedy and we've been capable of meta levels of comedy for a long time which is why i think the authentic is really yeah, powerful kill, really in this moment the frog, yeah but like i have lots of friends and in my comedy career doing you know a lot of uh sketch comedy early on and everybody i know being fans of the marx brothers and laurel and hardy there's a metal level of not only we're we doing the thing But we're delighting in that we know that we're doing the thing and we know that the audience knows that we're doing the thing. Like if you do some physical comedy (laughs) with a bowler hat, it's it's got a a different level of comedy to it because it's almost like it is funny because we are doing it Mm -hmm. before we actually do anything. Because that is a that's comedy from the past. And there's (laughs) this little contrast of doing it in the future. Yeah. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be successful or surprising, but there's that kind of.
0: It's like covering a song. Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, all of the Muppet Show is is structured with a love of vaudeville and a love of the old and the the entire joke of the original Muppet Show is a show should be good and run smoothly. Ah, (laughs) wavy arms, like uh, that's the whole contrast. But there is even that level of like the the dancing ballroom with the bad jokes is that cultural agreement to, like, the jokes are supposed to be bad, and that is a part of the joy in the surprise of the structure, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make any sense to you? Is that how you relate to gags or bits, or do you have a different take?
0: It was, I mean, because, again, this is all just kind of feeling it out in the dark, but um it strikes me that jokes are a fully, like, an end-to-end constructed thing. Like, yeah. they're sort of composed, like like just a sort of like musical analogy it's a, a song almost yeah it's, it's sort of wide the chicken cross the road to get to the other side end of joke
1: um <laughs> we know we're
3: done
0: <laughs> and zing by the way tip your wages uh, and then gags are they're like the chord changes within the song they're the little moving parts that give the joke its character and a bit i think about like um the, any sort of podcast that i listen to that is just sort of two or more people sitting around a table just kind of playing grab ass for an hour, which is a lot of podcasts at this point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's the idea, and maybe that's just like a West Coast comedy thing, who knows, but like the idea of like, you know, you get like get in on the bit. We're trying to play. In the, it's sort of the, the bit is the conditions under which jo- like jokes and gags can be made. If that yeah. Makes sense.
1: yeah. 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 In improv, people talk about finding the game a lot. And I think that's true of many things. Of If you're even if you're just writing a sketch or, or even if you're uh, if you're on a podcast and trying to riff and finding like, well, what's our angle? What's our way in? What's the game of this sketch? Yeah. And I think that gets into more storytelling comedy.
2: Yeah. we're okay. finding
1: the game would be, oh, two people walk out and you're both pretending to make sandwiches. Like, great. But what we're, we're trying to find. What are the stakes? Yeah, Why are so,
0: we here? Why is the audience here with us? Yeah, yeah. So
1: if you figure out pretty soon that one person uh, had a terrible sandwich accident and right. is terrified of sandwiches. In the other feels they are the best sandwich artist at the, uh, this subway. Mm-hmm. And then you start to figure figure out like, okay, but what's the game of it? Is it more about the ego of the sandwich artist or is it about the guy who's terrified? And you can agree like, oh, uh, the game will be other people are going to come in and order the most terrifying sounding sounding sandwiches humanly possible. And then you have a structure, right? Then yeah. you know that, okay, the game is come in and, and ask for, I want, you know, the exploding tuna.
0: Right. And then
1: see how that, <laughs> The exploding you know,
0: tuna killed my father. Oh no. Yeah, yeah.
1: see how that plays out. Narratively, you know, and that Mm. that kind of storytelling comedy uh, means a lot for me from doing comedy from a narrative perspective. Like Mm -hmm. I have written plays. I was just talking to uh, an old friend of mine who is just a phenomenal actor and comedian where one of the biggest laugh lines of the play was the sentence, were you a pirate? And it was because of the context and because of his delivery, right? And mm-hmm. you couldn't just walk into like, you know, a stand-up club and go, uh, do you have a joke? And like, were you a pirate? And like, it's all based on the context of <laughs> yeah. the game, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the motivations of the of the person.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about, um, I don't remember which special it is, but Chris Rock, um, he said, um, like one of those like playing a huge pristine, like probably at the Apollo or something, yeah. like, a huge theater He said, not a single white man in this room would trade places with me. Not a single one of them. And I'm rich. (laughs) And that sentence, like, just out of context, like, if you just read that, you go, oh, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess. But the room was already, like, rolling in the aisles. And then he drops this on them and just the room explodes. And there's no, I don't know how I could pick that apart to call that a joke, but it certainly is. It certainly operated as a joke. But it's also just a true ass thing that he said.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's even before the I'm rich, which is a super powerful button, it's already funny because it has this contrast because we're examining the status of different people in society in one setting. Yeah. But in that setting, and this comes up in comedy a lot, when you're on stage, even if you are saying true things about your station, your power... When you're on stage, and particularly when you're doing well, you have power. Mm -hmm. In that room, you are a god. You are the most powerful person in that room, in that moment, in that context. Yeah. So already to say, like, that person wouldn't trade places with me has this societal truth. Right. But this contracts to, like, I'm killing it up here. I'm having a (laughs) great time. Everybody's loving me. Right. Who wouldn't want to trade places with me? Mm Mm-hmm an idiot white man you know right uh so it's got uh, those layers yeah i'm i've always been fascinated with the uh, comedy duo dean martin and jerry lewis because mm-hmm. there's just an incredible contrast dean martin's the uh, jerry lewis uh, described them as sex and slapstick and that was their appeal the <laughs> contrast of that uh but in their interpersonal lives they are a great examination of these kinds of different power identifiers because Jerry Lewis was extremely successful when they were, I know there's a lot of cultural baggage with Jerry now, but he was extremely successful. Mm -hmm. He had all of the power on stage because he was funny. Mm -hmm. And that translated to financial power and creative decision power. But in the real world, for real, Dean Martin was a boxer and every woman who came across him thought he was the most charming man on earth. And so those two were constantly sort of destructive to one another because they were jealous of one another's ex- specific kind of power. <laughs> yeah. Like, Jerry was obsessed in his career with, like, well, okay, great, great. I conquered the world of comedy, but how can I show everybody that I'm I'm a man? And Dean Martin was like, well, in the real world, I'm, like, especially then, the stereotype of everything a man should be. Uh yeah. But I want to get laughs. And that little jerk is getting all the laughs. And he has the power because of that. So, uh, yeah. That there's a, a diatribe about power in comedy. Yeah. But I think it does come up in, in in analyzing why joke different jokes are successful because there are all these different levels of cultural understanding. Yeah. Right.
0: Which is probably why, because I think a lot about why, like, so many people get their news from, like, The Daily Show and from, like, Weekend Update and formats like that and, like, Pod Save America and, yeah. you know, these sort of joke Like, especially, like, I'm fascinated with Last Week Tonight because it is clearly engineered to be like, here's a bunch of really dense, uncomfortable information, and then a really dense joke to like, just kind of pop that open so that your brain can receive more information. Yeah. And it's, like, seemingly timed down to the second, because, like, you watch him, like, he can't let people laugh. He kind of shushes them, like, okay, I only have, they're gonna yank me out with a big vaudeville hook at the end of this thing. I have to get this out because my slides, I have 50 more slides (laughs) to get through, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, something about, like, using comedy to massage your brain so that you can receive, like, uncomfortable new information is really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that starts to get into, like, the why of it, right? And often it's uh, catharsis, just to release it, mm-hmm. um, to release tension. Uh, you, you were talking about using comedy just to deal with your own just social right uh, uh, needs. Yep. To say uh, let's that's if I feel at all uncomfortable, everybody feels more comfortable after a laugh. Yeah. And I think that translates to all of us just from uh, in any sort of social exchange, all the way to hey, this show is explicitly trying to say. Challenging things about society and making arguments, which a lot of comedians don't think comedy is for making an argument, but that yeah. shows explicitly we are trying to be warriors. we are trying to make a point, and then we also want to make you laugh. All of these things can be full of tension, so that that's a great way to release it mm-hmm. so there there's the releasing part, and then there is the idea that all jokes do have meaning. yeah you might have got far enough in the in the Freud book, one of his big things is. Uh, that he divides jokes into innocent, just things like telling a kid, like, well, a cow makes the sound moo, and the kid is amused because that's wrong, Yeah. Uh, versus tendentious, which was his term for it, which is that jokes that contain meaning. Yeah. And in particular, when he was studying it, I think there was probably a lot more just fun, innocent wordplay in a more repressed society. Mm -hmm. And he was really fascinated with the jokes where, like, this is a way to say something that I could not otherwise say Mm-hmm. And we can all make the cultural agreement to like, oh, oh, that was a relief to, to think that. But of course, we don't actually mean that. No, no, no. no. Right. But we do, mm-hmm. uh, which he got into. So I, I wanted to ask you about that innocent tendentious split, because mm-hmm. you are great at portmanteaus. You are great at wordplay in general. Do you feel like there should be more innocent jokes that are truly like, I'm not trying to say anything other than be playful with language? And be surprising and fun versus I'm trying to encode everything with deep meaning.
0: Um, I don't think, well, I I feel like if every joke has a message hidden in it, then people will kind of not, they'll know like, well, this spoonful of sugar's for some medicine I don't want to take. You know (laughs) what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody who doesn't want to make jokes should have to make jokes. You mean like... Like it is a contrast to the every late night talk show host has to have the president in their monologue now, like that kind of thing,
1: yeah, I guess even more for yourself as a creator, I guess it gets to a little bit of like um the tone of comedy if you want there to be more jokes that are like nobody expected that rhyme, and it's clever, but it doesn't mean anything. it's not trying to secretly communicate something,
0: yeah, and or I,
1: isn't isn't doesn't have a little bit of a knife twist to it,
0: I mean it's. It's a tightrope I'm trying to walk in my songwriting, for sure, because um, I have, you know, kind of a grumpy song about Hillary Clinton being pestered in when she was trying to just walk in the woods like a regular old lady.
1: Uh, in pantsuit, Sasquatch? Is that right? That is the one. Yeah, so good.
0: Thank you. Um, and that has some jokes in it to kind of just sort of little like sprinkles on the end of the sort of the, the sort of John Oliver thing of like here's a thing you don't want to think about and a joke. <laughs> um, but then I also have a song called Johnny Dick Legs about a cowboy who has dicks where his legs <laughs> ought to be. And I'm pretty sure, sh- like, if there's a message in that song, it's that, um, <laughs> you know, our private parts are just inherently funny and we shouldn't take them so seriously. Yeah. Um, Which I think is, I mean, I guess maybe that is. There was, I, I tried to read, I started to read a uh, Bergson because you recommended Bergson. And he yeah. has an essay on laughter that's like 100 pages long, real short. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, his his theory was that, you know, comedy happens when we try to see the humanity in someone and then remember that they have a body. Yes. And that their body is, you know, the, their soul is this transcendent sort of light thing. And then they have this kludgy, flatulent body that gets in the way. <laughs> and that's just inherently funny. And so I feel like even like I have Johnny Dick and I have a song about the Hawaiian fertility goddess Kapo with her flying detachable vagina. But I wrote both of those kind of thinking like these are <laughs> these are both just ridiculous objects yeah that we shouldn't be so precious about um and also like i know i can't remember who like wanda sykes and chelsea peretti have done stand-up about like lots of men make dick jokes in their stand-up and there's not as many like jokes about the female parts yeah um and i think that balance should be changed so there's always kind of a i'm always when i'm making a joke i'm thinking like well what why yeah but portmanteaus are just it's just, you know how some people they can they just see anagrams, like they will see, you know, the words like Cinerama and they'll go, Oh, American, same letters. Like, and I'm not one of those people. Like once they are po- pointed out to me, I see them. But Okay.
1: I, I I go to I drive past the Cinerama sign and walk past the Cinerama sign uh, thousands of time. I've never seen the word American in that.
0: Yeah, no, it was it was pointed out to me and now I can't unsee it. <laughs> but it's just really I think it's for me a desire for efficiency. Like, how can we get these into <laughs> a more efficient space, or uh, it's just sort of—it doesn't even feel like a joke as I'm making it. It feels like just a groove that my brain slots into, whether I like it or not. Yeah, you know, just sort of like a like a tick almost.
2: Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: so I
1: I can see that. And it's
0: uh, it's nice that it's amusing. It's nice that people find it amusing, and maybe that's what makes it an innocent joke, because I'm not even doing it consciously.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's what Freud was interested in. It's very very funny to think of. Is the song Johnny Dicklegs" an innocent joke <laughs> by Freudian <laughs> standards?
0: <laughs> well, yeah. God, what would Freud think? I didn't even get that far. Oh, uh, I, uh, I think,
1: it, you think you'd have plenty to think about uh, were he alive today. <laughs> but Johnny Dick Legs is a great example because uh, you always in concert set it up with where it came from, mm-hmm. which I'm always obsessed with how much direction you give the audience, how much you you are basically telling people the setup line when you give the description of... uh, Because at a convention you saw something, right, that inspired you?
0: Yeah, I saw um, a little... Somebody had a little RC robot with these kind of... What looked like thumb-shaped legs at first, but they did have these little sort of rubber pads on all the tips. Um, And just after... Because we were actually watching The Door at a Double Clicks show, and... Just noticed at some point, like, oh, well, that guy, that guy's Johnny Thumblegs. Hey, Johnny Thumblegs. And over the evening, he turned into Johnny (laughs) Dicklegs. And we just kept, we just liked saying the phrase Johnny Dicklegs. And I didn't want to write a song about, like, I saw a robot at a con and he was doing some dance. Like, (laughs) that's boring. (laughs) But then I wrote that song as a joke for my friends and didn't intend anybody else to hear it. And so then to present it to my audience, I felt like, okay, so I'm not a complete lunatic. <laughs> Let me explain where this song came from. Um, and I'm not sure. Do you think that I could just go out and be like, here's a song about a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. And then just go into he's got dicks for legs. like?
1: I think people would enjoy it. they figured it out. But I think not. And this is my bias. Uh, I don't think they would enjoy it the same. And I don't think they would enjoy it as much. I think they would enjoy... The absurdity of absurdity of it, and maybe this is getting back to the the Freud innocent yeah. uh, uh, versus tendentious, whether or not it has has meaning. Uh, it's a funny phrase, and the style of music that you put it to to that it sounds like the intro for a TV show Western in the 1950s yeah. is a big part of the comedy because it is that that it, it sounds like you're. You're singing a song about Johnny Frontier, stand-up guy who's, you know, great with a lasso, but instead it's Johnny Dick Legs.
0: Jonathan Richard Legs of (laughs) of the Wild West.
1: Exactly. So there's that inherent contrast. But by letting the audience into why, there's the humanity of it. There is the you saw something that thousands and thousands of other human beings have seen, but you saw it in this new and different way. And there's just like that contrast of... A million people see Robot, and they go, oh, Robot. One person, Molly Lewis, sees that and says, ah, Johnny Dicklegs, a Western theme song, of course. Right. Uh, and That, to me, it makes it more joyful, and it allows people into the joke. You were talking about people agreeing to be a part of the joke.
0: Right, agreeing that's, to be amused. Yeah,
1: that's, you're basically like sending them an Evite to the joke of like, <laughs> do you want to be in on it? Do you want to be a part of it? This is where it actually came from. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's much more joyful.
0: I would hope so. I mean, it, it, jokes are a scarce—or not jokes. Uh, songs are a scarce commodity for me, so I kind of didn't know else to catch it <laughs> in my live presentation. It's, like, it's got to be in there. Here's a real earnest song about Hillary, Hillary Clinton. Here's another one <laughs>
1: <laughs> about Johnny Dicklegs. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, comedy in music because you are an expert on that, and I know that you always have like strong opinions and good observations about how comedy functions in music. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking about Bergson, uh, his thing that I always taken with me is that, you know, he stated it is incrustation of the mechanical on the living versus Elon Vital, which always amuses me because it's just an overly clunky way to say soul versus body in a way. But mm-hmm. but he was really obsessed with that idea of the mechanical, that, we, that the truth of us is that we are flowing, organic creatures, mm-hmm. right? That we are luminous beings, but we are obsessed with lines and straight edges and we contain ourselves and like Mm -hmm. I when I every time that my phone autocorrects on me I'm like Andre Bergson was right you know (laughs) Or like you know, there was one time that I was relatively close to the ocean, and I was trying to put in the map. Like, well, how do I get to uh, Chipotle? And my phone was like drive into the ocean, like <laughs> on Ray Uh So there's there's both the kind of exterior version of that, and then there's that internal version of that of of we are uh, flowing, beautiful creatures, uh, but also we have to poop. Um, right. I think of, when I when I think of songs, I, I see that because there is the incrustation of. Chords go a certain way, words fit a certain way. If you've established a rhythm, mm-hmm. we know that something's coming uh, that's really in the system. Right? Yeah. It's not like stand up where you can kind of change your music. You can change your ums and ahs you can and your respond. pauses and yeah. like there's a little bit of a vocabulary there, but it's not the same as being locked into a song. Yeah. How do you feel about that idea of how how songs are how comedy is different in songs because they are in, encrusted with a very specific shape?
0: Well, it's I mean the thing about songwriting is that um, like with with poetry or you know prose or anything that is read on the page, you have to anticipate your audience sort of going through it at their own pace and reading back through things and. I mean, because you you know, because you've done comedy in many different mediums, like to write a book is different than stand-up. Right. Because you are are delivering the jokes to their ear rather than sort of presenting it in its completion and allowing them to guide themselves through it. And music is, lyric in particular, is unique from poetry or any other form of writing because you have to, you basically, the music is like a time code. It is sort of a program that determines here's how the next three and a half minutes of your life are going to go. Um, and it, it exists only in time. Like yeah. you can't read sheet music and know, oh, yeah. That, I mean, some people can. Yeah. Um, some sort of irritating geniuses. But <laughs> uh, but like, you know, music lives on a recording. But if the recording's not being played, music doesn't exist. And so when you're trying to deliver um, ideas through lyric, you have to not only sort of pace it out on that time code, but where like if someone reads something in a book and goes, I didn't, uh, and they can read it again. Right. You have to get ahead of that. As um, as a lyricist, like with stand-up, if, kind of, if you get sort of a tepid response to something, you can kind of, you're present in the room with them, and you can, to an extent...
1: Right, you can try to reframe it or play off it, it off as a meta-joke.
0: The, the conversation between stand-ups and their audience is really, like, the audience en masse and the stand-up as an individual is really fascinating to me. Yeah, And also terrifying, which is why I didn't go into stand-up. <laughs> um, but you have to, as a lyricist, give the audience time to process yeah. What they've just heard. um, In a way that, like, you know, when you land a joke in a stand-up routine, you kind of, I would hope, have a sense of, like, what's going to get to sort of a titter and what's going to get... What's the thing that you end on where you go, thank you, goodnight, and you right. want to put your biggest laugh there. And so with Lyric, you do that, you pad for... Like, there for example, uh, my song, uh The Pumpkin Spice Lament from Thanksgiving yeah. vs. Christmas, um, there's a line... It's just kind of a mopey, torchy song about pumpkin spice lattes and how they're only around for two months, um, which does not include Thanksgiving for some reason. <laughs> um, and there's a line, after Halloween's over, I can tell your star is dimming. And I have to just accept that you're the Rib but for women. And I deliberately had to put that at the end of that, that stanza yeah. in the song because it predictably gets the biggest laugh. Yeah. And I had to write in the music, like, if they really laugh a lot... I have an extra little phrase that I can play to give them time to kind of simmer down, but then the music also simmer like signals to them like okay, she's gonna say another thing, you know, and yeah, so it's this sort of uh, th- there's this you because I'm not the sort of musician that can improvise. I generally just kind of I'm not flexible in that way um, and just limited by my technical ability, I wish that I could. But so I have to really anticipate the audience's reaction to things.
1: Right, like build in uh, the laugh break.
0: Build in laugh breaks and, yeah, kind of place the jokes in a way that, like, here's the setup and then the punchline and then a little instrumental and then a setup and a punchline. And the, the fortunate thing, too, is because uh, songs are generally structured in a pretty predictable way. There's a verse where you kind of set up an idea and then the chorus is the punchline. Yeah. And then the verse, you can kind of, ele- now that we know the shared space, now they are all in on the bit, here's some more. And then Johnny, he's Johnny Dick legs. Um, and you can have a bridge if you have another idea, if you want to kind of, oh, did you consider over here in, yeah. this, in my unpaved basement of, <laughs> of ideas? Um, but yeah, I feel like uh, as a comedy songwriter, I do benefit from people being settled into the structure of songs. Right. And I can kind of play, I can p- play up those contrasts, really. Yeah, Like just the idea of doing a Torchy Jazz song about a product from Starbucks is itself funny. And so already they're bought into a certain comedy premise that I can play within.
1: I was going to ask you about that specific line because I think it is not only one of your funniest lines, but there's something about it that is specifically um, just very joyful and always feels like a release every time I hear it and every time the audience hears it. (laughs) I think there's something about, the, the like you're saying, the conceit of the song is funny. Initially. Uh, but then it is this kind of warm, it is a just a really nice ballad. So I think people get suckered in that like, I, I'm entertained and I'm amused. And then you suddenly punch them in the face with a really strong joke joke.
0: And I feel Mike material in particular, and same with our friends, The Double Clicks, the contrast of jokes and like heartfelt sincerity. Yeah. You know, like Jonathan Colton traffics in that. Um, there's lots of songwriters Like, because Tom Lehrer, I think, is just purely, purely jokes. He's never sentiment. But now, because we live in this sort of postmodern time, and all genres of everything are blending together, and nothing, no words matter anymore. um, (laughs) There's a lot of comedy musicians uh, can benefit from, like, really, like something heartfelt and earnest, and then just the goofiest thing possible. Yeah, like you can swing the pendulum so much wider now because I think audiences are more trained. Yeah. Um. And more critical, more analytical.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, all of the uh, pumpkin spice lament Mm -hmm. does have a little bit of a pushback against people being judgy on pumpkin spice right
0: always yeah like if anything most of my songs are sub tweets about something i read on twitter (laughs) like it just kind of you know i don't want to like i want to tweet about this but i don't want to read my mentions so instead i'm gonna write a song about it (laughs)
3: because
0: yeah like every year in like you know august or whenever pumpkin spice season starts you get people like posting pictures of like you know pumpkin spice hot sauce or pumpkin spice cheerios and going oh
2: it's begun yeah
0: and I'm, I'm very much in the camp of, like, unless you are the body turning it into poop, it's not your business. Yeah. Uh, just, like, let people enjoy the things that they like. We have enough problems.
1: I, I do want you to reply with that actual tweet. Like, are you turning that into poop? Then shut up. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's, it's my body, my poop, my business.
1: Um, So I, if, if you're okay with it, and you don't mm-hmm. have to be, uh, I wanted to ask you to kind of put on the comedy analysis hat and anal- analyze your your own joke a little bit yeah. about the McRib for women. So it's coming from a starting place of it's embedded in a song that has a little bit of gender uh, ideas to it initially, mm-hmm. right? Because Pumpkin Spice has, in a lot of those jokes, is signified as it's, for, it's women. Yeah. It, it, or it's... it's it, you you it's,
0: ladies with your, your yoga pants and your Pumpkin Spice. Right. Your, it's yeah.
1: sugary and weak and bleh. Mm-hmm. So the song is already encoded with that. Uh. Do you think that is why there is such a release of catharsis when you get to this specific it's the McRib for women joke?
0: I, I would hope it's the the last week tonight thing of like I have massaged their brain to such a <laughs> point, just the Wagyu sort of songwriter listener brain um, for that joke to really land because they're, I, I feel like um, in, in in sort of, you know, using my using comedy to sort of grease the wheels of acceptance. Yeah. Um, comedy opens people up you can't decide like i don't like this and still laugh at it or if you are that's bullying yeah you know <laughs> and you know some from what i've heard some stand-up clubs are your audience bullying you a little bit mm-hmm. um and that but that's a different kind of laughter and i think if you go to a show to be it's the will to be amused if you go to a yeah. show to laugh at something you in some way have to open yourself up to new ideas yeah and that's i think why comedy is powerful socially and why it's used to you know allow people to accept uncomfortable news and uncomfortable information and so the through the course of the pumpkin spice song you know it sets up the like i'm sad i miss pumpkin spice why can't starbucks keep pumpkin spice around oh but you're here now why can't we still have it why are there other flavored lattes and there can't be pumpkin spice and and yeah i think at that point they're sort of we're on the same page to an extent so by the time you get to that line because yeah that's always bothered me that like twitter explodes when the McRib comes back uh you know or you know the rick and morty sauce or whatever it is (laughs) but like a harmless coffee thing like nobody like shamrock shakes when shamrock shakes come back everybody flips out and it just seemed that disproportionately the dislike of pumpkin spice was gendered in its nature yeah you know it's why people pooped on the Beatles when they got here is because young women liked it and if a young if young women like it in mass it must be dumb yes you know and and it seemed to be pumpkin spice seems to be sort of getting the backlash of that yeah these days And I agree, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't have pumpkin spice-scented yoga mats. That's dumb. I agree. (laughs) I agree that's a lot. But also, capitalism is trash. Like, I don't think that's on pumpkin spice. Take that up with late-stage capitalism.
1: (laughs) Take it up with late-stage capitalism. So for you, (laughs) if uh, if one is to accept the idea that there are literal setup lines, but there are also cultural setup lines. Yes. I mean, you have a literal joke of comparing it to McRib, but the sort of analytical version of that is uh, McRib, your gross- uh, McDonald's meat that you've associated with masculinity yeah. uh, is being contrasted with this isn't that different.
0: Yeah, to use your analogy of like the load-bearing pillar in a joke.
1: Yeah.
2: The
0: load-bearing pillar in that song is this is a seasonal thing that is artificially scarce. Yeah. And that bums me out. Um, And so if we agree like – you know, it wouldn't, it, how does Starbucks, how, are they so starved of space that they can't store another <laughs> bottle of pumpkin like flavor pump? Yeah. You know, and, and I think the, the sort of personal perspective, you know, to how audiences kind of, they don't want to just, well, I went to the store the other day, I wanted to see, like, yeah. people don't do those jokes anymore. Um, in that voice, especially <laughs> with those arms. Just me and Nadia Osman out here with his voice. Yeah, I'd say this is a bit. Yeah. <laughs> see? Uh, yeah. But, yeah. To, to get that far into the song, um, it is, you, we have to agree to a certain point. Yeah. And it sort of feels like the logical extension of like, well, if you've agreed with me thus far, then let me throw this at you. And that that's the other thing I've talked to other comedy songwriters about. Um, it is scary to play songs that don't have jokes in them sometimes. Oh, yeah. Because you can constantly take the temperature of whether or not your audience is with you. Yes. And when I started out, I was kind of reading that as like, do they like me? Do they accept what I'm doing? But there's also, especially with sort of opinion comedy, like, you know, sort of, I do have an opinion about Pumpkin Spice, clearly. (laughs) Um, And if they're laughing up to that point in the song, then they have to agree with me to some point. Or the laughter is mocking, but in a big room, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Can I really tell the difference? <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's always, I think, uh, a difficult transition. If you've if you've done comedy, and uh, comedy, obviously, you get feedback, and by necessity, you're keeping a certain amount of energy in the room. Mm-hmm. And so there's that fear that, oh, no, oh, no, if I haven't had a joke for a while, the energy will disappear. How
0: do I know what, what they're feeling? How do I know yeah. this is okay? Yeah.
1: Um, I wanted to, to talk just a little bit about that idea that you, uh, you brought up about surprise and how comedy functions in songs. Mm-hmm. Cuz I think a really really great joke is a surprise that makes perfect sense. Yes. Right? And that's why just smashing two things together of like there are two things behind a door and one is a turkey and the other is <laughs> printer ink. <And> like <laughs> right. cool. I, I didn't guess. expect the printer ink, but I am not at all entertained or engaged. It's, <laughs> it's that like it, it's a, it's a surprising way to say something that we know or feel or agree with, or we would have never thought of it that way. And I feel like uh, is part that, that McRib for Women line, is part of its power is it is such a gentle, specific, expected rhyme mm-hmm. in this expected structure yeah. that that gives it this feeling like music, like when a song resolves and it comes back home, right? It comes to the home note. Mm-hmm. You have this great contrast of a rhyme that is perfect and if it didn't have this funny meaning it would just sound like a beautiful carly simon lyric right uh but also yeah. ha- is embedded with all this meaning so you get the joy of the surprise and the sort of comfort of the package
0: yeah your brain expects everything but the idea
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like if people were, were left alone with a, a book they could find women to rhyme with dimmon yeah <laughs> but they wouldn't be able to find the meaning that you gave it right yeah
0: well, and I have another the song about the fertility goddess. I yeah. did the opposite thing. There's this thing called Dropped Rhymes. Yeah. Uh, the line is, get ready, dudes and ladies, my vagina's on the hunt. Because basically <laughs> the song is about like, if I had a detachable vagina. It's the Wanda Sykes bit, but I set it to music. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, my vagina's on the hunt. It's not just for making babies when I drone strike with my crotch. Yes. And that that is uh it's the 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 contra- the opposite of that trick is they are expecting a particular word right there. Right. And they there there's a tension, right? It's the tension and fluidity or whatever yeah. Bergson's thing was.
1: Yeah. incrustation of the mechanical on the living versus Elon vital.
0: But he had yeah, there's that too. Could you say <laughs> Oh, he had another uh, yeah, another Say that one more time.
1: <laughs> incrustation of the mechanical on the living versus Elon vital. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, he, I think it was a tension and uh, flexibility were the the two forces. Um, And that, you know, we should be fluid, but instead we are rigid. Yes, uh, yes. Much of the time. And yeah, they're they're expecting, I think there's an internal tension of like waiting for me to say the word. Yes. And then I say a different word that means the same thing, but doesn't rhyme. Right. And it breaks, the meanings, they expect the meaning, but the structure of it surprises them.
1: Right. And that's a great example of innocent versus tendentious. So if you were just doing that with a annual word, with an obvious rhyme that wasn't a loaded word that some audience members are like, oh, please, gonna... please don't say that. Oh. Yeah. Once it's a, once it's a word that has cultural meaning, mm-hmm. then it's tendentious. But if it was just innocent, it would just be like, ah, you were expecting me to say tank, but I said butt.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. right.
1: I guess butt it can be loaded. Uh, yeah, that I, that is fascinating. And I was going to ask you about another lyric in that song. You, you have another joke in that song. In I think it is in, in capo. Yeah, that I think is John Ham related. Yes, that I have watched you and audiences try to figure out exactly where and how the laugh should land.
0: <laughs> um. Yeah, it's. Yeah, because the 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 song is it was a commission, and so I didn't really think about the th- the through line of it as I was writing it. Um, but yeah, in among my like the, one of the last like it's just a list of like here's the other reasons it would be great to have a detachable autonomous drone vagina. <laughs> um, yeah, and the line is I could clam slam John Ham from fifty yards away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because. I, I, and that—that was a, a bunch of satisfying things for me because I was thinking about like, what is the fem the not not I won't say female, but the you know for people who have vaginas, what is the equivalent of teabagging someone? <laughs> and I decided it would be a clam slam. <laughs> I don't have anything—not nothing against John Hamm; he's not my <laughs> most favorite, but it happened to rhyme. Yeah. Um. And. I think, I don't know what, I don't even know what it, it amused me. That's yeah. the weird thing. It's like some jokes I'll make going like, I know that this is funny because X, Y, and Z, it plays up to the, and I can't put, you know, vocabulary to it, but. I just kind of know, like, oh, the McRib from from for women is gonna kill. Yeah, I don't this, know why clam, Slam John is funny. <laughs> it's making me laugh now just thinking about it. So.
1: Specificity. People often talk about specificity makes things more funny.
0: I think it's a stack of. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's just it's it's uh, in, in terms of just like wordplay, it's fun because right. it's if you had if you had no idea what that meant, if somebody who didn't speak English and you got them to say clam, Slam John Ham, yeah. they, they would probably find that joyful, but. Like, I can immediately just picture, you know, John Hammond's Don Draper, like, at his desk smoking, looking really serious, and suddenly look up to the sky, like, ah, what's coming? <laughs> just this wet
0: foot. I picture him at the other end of a football field. Yeah. Just, yeah.
1: I am fascinated with it because people are, well, every time I've heard you do that song, people love it, but they have different levels of relationship to it in different levels of laugh at different lines. But there yeah. have been times where that, that idea is so violently funny to people. And sometimes they just go go for it and give themselves permission to laugh in the middle of the line because it doesn't come at the end of the line. Yeah. But other times people wait <laughs> for the end. Of, they're like, ah, clam slam John Ham. That's very funny, but I shall wait four <laughs> more seconds to laugh until you are done with the lyric.
0: I feel like that is almost in that way. I've been spoiled by having a geek audience. I feel like I, ha- I haven't played to a lot of general audiences, but at you know at conventions or um you know house shows and things they they really because they know my material is carefully structured and not like loose or ambient like yeah you know, so <laughs> certain pop music that they listen very attentively to the lyrics yeah in a way that I have maybe engineered towards in like later songwriting um because I think what what works with clamslam John and ham is they're they're surprised <laughs> by clam slam and then it's like if you imagine kind of, as you' as you're structuring the joke and as you're playing on our shared ideas and expectations you're kind of they're all train cars that we all have we're all working in the same train yard and you're just putting the trains together in a new way um, and the laughter is when you couple two of those cars right? yeah but clam slam John ham is like they couple like clam slam <laughs> and that's a new one I guess those words rhyme and I know what that means and that conjures a picture and then John Ham comes in behind <laughs> before you've really processed like what a clam slam is yeah. There's just sort of this, um, this, this stack that happens.
1: Yeah, there is. I would say there is a game to that song where we we're all very uh, uh, clear on the conceit, <laughs> on, yeah. on the narrative, on the story, <laughs> on the game. Right, he gets it
0: out of the way pretty quick. Yeah,
1: and then the comedy becomes about escalation. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, th- th- we're going a little bit longer than we normally would in this uh, oh, section, yeah. but I'm having a good time. So if you're okay, uh, I, I talking- got nowhere to be. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, so. I think this is where discussions about offensive comedy come in to me. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not, and I'm not calling your song offensive, but what I'm saying is the game of it is, all right, we're going to accept that there's this flying body part. What's the most absurd thing you could say? And mm-hmm. you set the bar and you set the bar and you set the bar. And by the time we get to Clam Slam John Ham, there's already that joy of wh- how is she going to go farther than she just did? Right. And Slam John Ham is toward the end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that joy And I think that's where uh, some offensive comedy comes from. If you have made the cultural agreement with people of like, we're going to tell naughty jokes. We're going to tell, we're going to say things you're not supposed to say in society for the point of catharsis, for people to laugh. Mm -hmm. And then because you're looking for that larger contrast, that larger surprise, people want to push and push and push. Right. Uh, and I think that's where when there's a lot of pushback on social media about it usually comes from standups of like, it's just a joke. I'm just saying something really surprising to, uh, to just make... trying to
0: start a conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, that's, uh, for, for part of my biases for a long time, uh, myself and a bunch of other people did a comedy variety show in the twin cities called look mono pants. Uh, and and it was always late at night, and there we always had booze, and it was always like it's rowdy, and that's the point. Yeah. yeah And then for a while, we would collect like sketches and go like well that's that's a bit too much, even for like you know pushing the envelope. <laughs> so then like for yeah. our first anniversary, we did a show called The Fencerama, and it was basically like, "Hey, audience, we are telling you that the, we don't agree with these things they're ju- the the contrast is we shouldn't say this, but we are. And there's the catharsis in, I've, I've been so uptight about, don't say that word, don't think that word. Right. The Oh, oh no, I heard the rhyme coming. It's going to be the C word. Right. And having a place to do that mm-hmm. and let go. And for me, uh, it became a discussion because some people go, that sketch, uh, that was not okay. And I didn't laugh at it, but I'm not mad because you told me mm-hmm. and I agreed to come to the show. <laughs> right. And we would have like... There was uh, one time where somebody was making a joke about dating and, like, everybody in the audience could tell that that one person meant it. Yeah. And the whole audience went shunk. Yeah. And it was not the most offensive thing said, even yeah. remotely. So, like, I come from this perspective that uh, part of the point of jokes is catharsis, to to release tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay with that if everybody has agreed to it yeah but now we're in a place where all of those jokes aren't being said in a theater where people are literally being invited into a space where you were being asked ahead of time yeah if those things are just on social media without that context then it's impossible to look at them just as we are experimenting with comedy and its relationship to catharsis and we can't ignore the fact that you might mean that and there is meaning in that joke Mm-hmm. You have to accept that there's meaning in it
3: mm-hmm.
1: how do you How do you feel about even the concept of saying something that you shouldn't in society for the pleasure of a release?
0: I mean, I feel like i I feel like any I always get upset whenever a comedian goes, "I meant that as a joke right because the idea I feel like part of your job as a person who professionally structures comedy. Puts ideas in a joke shape for the intention of making your audience laugh, <laughs> um, is if your audience goes, no, 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 then you, your job was to construct the joke. You build the joke. If you if you build a car and it doesn't drive, then you have to take the car apart and figure out why it didn't drive. <laughs> right. It's not on the person driving the car or even on the, on the passenger, for that matter. And it just feels like a cop out to because something is a joke, it is immune from criticism. Right. Um. Because I definitely, I've talked to, I went to an open mic with my cousin recently, and there was one, uh, one female comic who killed, absolutely, and leading up to her were two just kind of college dudes who were trying to stand up for the first time, and one of them was just kind of, he was doing the thing where he was undercutting himself, and that was killing his jokes, but his jokes weren't bad. The other dude was like, why aren't there Asians at Hogwarts? And you know why? Why is it that I can't get a girlfriend? <laughs> and he...
1: <laughs> that contrast between those two topics amuses me.
0: Yeah, no, because like I I was I was in, in I was bought into the premise. I agree. Why aren't there Asians at Hogwarts? I want to yeah. know. And something eh, the wands are kind of like chopsticks, and everyone went. Oh. Ooh. And it was it seemed like the the disagreement was we didn't agree on what the load billing the load bearing pillar of the joke was. Right, right, right. Because if we agree, like the load bearing pillar of this joke is that. This is offensive. We agree that it's offensive, but we will put it in the structure of a joke, and we have heard this joke before. Yeah. But we can kind of, like, I mean, even appreciate it structurally. Like, like, yes, why do women be different than men to get to the other side, or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I feel like to deliberately make an offensive joke to, just to push people's buttons is... An abuse of that power, Mm. right? Because you, you know, if you are whether you're Chris Rock at the Apollo or you're just you know the person on stage at UCB or whatever it is, you do have the power in that situation. Yeah, and to speak things as if you are speaking for the whole audience, it's, it's, it's. I mean, it comes to down to power differentials, I think. Yeah, it's an abuse of that power differential.
1: Yeah, for me, there's always like agreement of what you're getting into. Like even to use. Johnny Dick Legs is an example, right? You set up not only the meaning of it, but you often make jokes about this is, I, I've written some stupid songs and this is the stupidest song I've yeah. written, right? this
0: shouldn't have been written, but here it is anyway. Right, yeah.
1: so that's not at all offensive, mm-hmm. but that's inviting. There's, you know, this term joking envelope, which Freud uses to, mm. to mean that jokes contain meaning, but there's also the uh, the version of it that is the societal agreement of we are in a joking space. Yes, yeah. Um, Like the example that I use when I have done workshops on that is like, if, if you're at an office, you could probably say to like your boss like you suck at golf, and everybody be like, ah, sure does at the at the uh, you know water fountain. Yeah. But if you're in the middle of a meeting while the business was failing, and you're like raised your hand and said uh, you suck at golf to the boss, like yeah, right. So there's there's that like where and when is it appropriate? What level of is it appropriate? But like for Johnny Dicklegs, you are letting people into the. You're inviting them to come to this very specific joking envelope of right. allow yourself to laugh at something stupid. Mm-hmm. That's why we're doing this is because it's stupid. And yeah. you're you're setting up the entire context for them to agree with. Mm-hmm. So even if they are thinking, this is dumb. Yeah. I am laughing at the fact that she even wrote it. Not even any other joke level, but just that it exists mm-hmm. and it's stupid. If they just thought that themselves, they might feel guilty. Like they're like... I think she did something stupid. But you're inviting them to say, <laughs> yeah, come you, in and celebrate that I'm a motherfucking idiot.
0: Yeah, you can be disappointed in me. It's okay.
1: Right, which is yeah. not a normal thing to say in society. To to say, like, here is the day where I'm going to invite everybody to enjoy the fact that I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah, the, yeah. I think th- I'm interested in that structure. Mm-hmm. And I think there have been times where, like... Um, uh, where people use that that structure to go, mm-hmm. just like we agreed that we're going to laugh at me being stupid, we agree that we're going to laugh at the differences between races. Sure. And then you have to be in that agreed upon space. Mm-hmm. I think the debate about a lot of stand-up is that any stand-up anywhere is automatically that agreed upon space.
2: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
1: I don't agree with that. Yeah. I I agree with when somebody goes to a comedy club, if you say a joke we're just going to dissect it for its meaning. Mm -hmm. And if it's structured to be that that no one can ever be effeminate and also be considered masculine, like if Mm -hmm. that is the, you know, or weird judgments about, you know, why Asian people are or not in Harry Potter, you can parse it for meaning and either it is supportive, there should have been more diversity in Harry Potter, or it is you are supporting an absolute cliché Yes. About Asian culture. Which
0: he was, yeah. yeah. It's the punching up, punching down conversation.
1: The punching up, punching down definitely makes sense to me. But it's also just that idea of like every joke has meaning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and unless you're in a space where you have just said the only point is laughter. The only point is catharsis and release. yeah, And we're all agreeing to just let go of meaning. Mm. That's one thing. And I think an incredibly rare thing. So yeah. the ma- majority of all comedy we're hearing is just let's decode that joke for are you punching up? Are you punching down? Mm-hmm. What cultural agreement is being supported
0: by the joke? Yeah. And I, I feel like I have, I, like, I feel like there is a power to stand up in particular and also to, like, sketch comedy. It will, like, I think about, like, all the times that someone has sent either, like, a John Mulaney clip or, you know, a bit from SNL or a bit from Portlandia, to sort of codify some experience that we've had. Yeah. Like, John Mulaney complained about student loans, but he did it in a comedy way, and these are opinions that I have. Yeah. Right? And I don't know if that's a byproduct. I don't know if that's just something inherent to uh, sort of the audience's relationship to comedy or if that's a byproduct of this time and the way that we share ideas. Yeah. Uh, Because definitely... Um, in the in the content creator conferences I've gone to, <laughs> uh, the reason that people share things is either to announce they they share things to announce something about themselves, even if it's not something they made. Yeah, right. They'll they'll sh- like the try guys or the comedy clips or whatever it is. It is a statement about yourself, and I feel that people are going to sketch and stand up for that kind of like ideological representation. Yeah, which is. Which I think, I think you're right. I think it does a disservice to people trying to just make innocent jokes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I think I think people uh, certainly can make innocent jokes. I've seen comedians in L.A. and they often go over very well who are like, I am basically doing puns except for on a very high level. It's just logic base. It's just yeah. – oh, I thought you were talking about a dog, but you were actually talking about a car, I suddenly realized because of your turn of phrase. And it it doesn't have meaning. It is just playing with... Yeah. You you, you need to have cultural knowledge, but it is not making a point that social, uh, that um, student loans are predatory. Yeah. Right? It's just saying, like, uh, you expected me to be going uh, left, then you expected me to be going right. I'm actually flying in a circle, like really surprising just for that, versus the... You agree with this and this is such a cathartic way to say it. And this is a way to go you walk down the street and people are like student loans, I I comprehend them. That's the incrustation, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. And the Alan Vital is the truth is it's insane, right? Mm-hmm. And I think expressing it in that way that makes people feel like they they're being heard in that yeah. the situation they're in is absurd. Yeah, exactly. Is, is so uh, cathartic. I can't yeah. get by without saying the word cathartic 72 times every day.
0: No, I, I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, the, uh, Bergson's thing about um, calling attention to sort of when people slip into, uh, like, basically automation. They, yeah. And they sort of do things uh, absentmindedly. Because um, I've been thinking because mindfulness is a big thing this year, right? And last year to an extent. And just the idea of, you know, trying to... Be aware of your changing conditions and that, you know, the self is a construct and you're just a kaleidoscope constantly shifting, <laughs> uh, you know, relaxing stuff like that meditation. Um, but that's it strikes me that um, comedy and that sort of open awareness to changing circumstance is a big component of comedy. Like it's the, the you know, the stand ups like student loans or, what, or racial identity or just any sort of personal like why there's so much identity comedy. Is, yeah, you are drawing attention to um, an absurd assumption that we all share. Yeah. And calling out that it's absurd. You're kind of shining this sort of light on it and going like, "You, we we are here and we believe this, but that's crazy, right? <laughs> yes. It's crazy that you wouldn't trade places with me and I'm rich, you know? That, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel like it is definitely the the part of comedy that I like that that I think is can be very, very healthy is it encourages you to look at things from as many perspectives as possible. In order to to construct the joke,
0: and which from is, an avowed non threatening perspective,
1: y- yes, from an alleged like it's safe. We're we're just here to laugh, which is I think why people retreat to that. Mm-hmm. But Like yeah, we're just here to have fun, and it will be a fun evening if it's successful comedy. But we will also walk out of here thinking about things differently. Yeah, possibly, hopefully, which is I think sometimes why I get a little bit irritated with like that idea of that using that structure of surprise and, and creativity to just reinforce what is normal. I was talking with uh, friends at a birthday party about why they didn't relate to Seinfeld, but they liked Letterman. Ooh, okay. And for me, Seinfeld always comes from a perspective of the normal world is correct, and things that deviate from the normal world are what's funny. Mm -hmm. It's when somebody does something that isn't the normal thing they're supposed to do. Yeah. And Letterman is just like... Uh, kind of almost like what you were just saying about mindfulness of like the world is batshit crazy so it is funny that we're trying to make sense of it at any time (laughs) like he's so that's why every it's funny to watch him just deconstruct trying to tie his Letterman can make tying his uh, shoes funny because you know in his prime because he's just like this is absurd this is all absurd none of us know what we're doing Mm -hmm. and to me those are these very polar opposite perspectives of how you can use comedy you can use it to absolutely enforce the norm or you can use it to question anything being normal.
0: Yeah, and see, I saw we re- we religiously watched Seinfeld in my household growing up, and I saw it as caricature. Like a- a- it was it was caricature, but it was also like it is possible to like just basically I saw like how deep down social anxiety can go. <laughs> like you can just micro-articulate like he's a regifter. He's she's got man hands. You know whatever right. it was. Just that like how quickly some absurd belief can get reinforced if you just find a word for it. Yes. You know, and it was, and I think the, the ending of that show bore out, like, they're not the good guys and we are supposed to laugh at them. <laughs> yeah. They're not laughing with any of them. <laughs> they're terrible objectively.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they went to actual prison. Yeah. Um, As we wrap up this part of the podcast, are you, any other uh, big picture thoughts that you wanted to share? Or?
0: <laughs> I... I've been kind of obsessed with the question of, like, physically, why do we laugh? But I feel like that's a larger question than we have time for. <laughs>
3: uh,
1: well, uh, how about we spin it this way? I wanted to ask you what, y- for you, the goal of comedy is. Like, when you do a show that is, um, you're on a comedy show, you're doing a set, what do you want people to experience? What What is ideal for you to say to them afterward?
0: Ideal for me to say to them?
1: Uh, for them to say to you.
0: Um... I mean, I – see, I don't know. I've been – there was um, – I've been reading David Byrne's book, How Music Works, and his – I feel like David Byrne and I are from the same planet. Okay. Wherever he's from, <laughs> I'm going to find it, and I'm, I'm from there too. Um, but he went into music and, in, it by extension, performance uh, because he felt socially uncomfortable and saw performance as a way to sort of socialize en masse, um, just sort of put a whole net out there and maybe draw in some friends. Um, and because the sort of regular entry to the social world, like sort of chit chat wasn't comfortable for him. And that's very much why, again, I've been just going through all of this intuitively and have not really questioned why I've just kind of been doing what feels correct. Yeah. Um, but like I have a, a song, like one of my, to go back to songs that are funny, you can kind of tell how the room's doing and songs that don't have jokes in them are terrifying for me to play because I don't know until the very end how I'm doing. Right. And so I have a song about Abraham Lincoln, um, specifically his assassination told from three different perspectives. <laughs> um, and I just wrote it because I felt like I had to, because because no, it didn't exist. And it, it turns out it did exist. Stephen Sondheim already did it. But like, <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> um, but to have packaged, I basically package, packaged the idea and the things that I connected to in that story in a pleasing and consumable way And after the show, if it also affects people, then I know I've done my job well. Yeah. I've been able to contextualize, here's the thing I found moving about this story, mostly John Wilkes Booth and his deep-seated delusion, um, and what, you know, sort of chauvinist nationalism can do to a person. Um, But those people still have feelings, and I found that very moving, so I wrote a whole song about it. Um, And I I feel like with the Pumpkin Spice song, how, you know, Pumpkin Spice is the micro for Women and just like lay off for a, se- for a second. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always... It's either like, here's a thing I believe or here's a thing I enjoy. Yeah. Those are kind of the nuggets at the center of any of my songs. And if people agree with those things or they enjoy them or they don't agree with those things, but now they have kind of a new perspective to consider, then I feel like I've done I've done my... Not my job, I don't want to say... It's not my job to go out there and change the hearts and minds of the nation. Yeah. Because <laughs> Johnny Dickley's is not going to do that work. But, you know, if I have, you know, given people new perspectives through which to consider things. then yeah. I've done my work well. Yeah. And I think songwriting does that and I think comedy does that. And it's, um, I've really enjoyed finding new ways to blend the two.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you do a great job. I mean, I, we've done a ton of shows together and I have seen you do many of your songs Um you always get laughs. It's, even when people have heard the songs before, <laughs> they get laughs because they're they're pleasing. Uh, so I think you, you spread joy. But I also think about the time that you did the Pantsuit Sasquatch song at a variety show that our, our mutual friend, uh, Laser Weber, and I were hosting. And I think because of the the nature of that song when you did it, I remember the room just kind of going quiet and then exploding. Mm-hmm. And it was relief because that song was so successfully expressing lots of things that were pe- that people were feeling but it just put it in such an elegant and enjoyable uh, package so it was one of those like deep complex moments of like I understand the pain that she's speaking about but I mostly express that through laughter and it just <laughs> feels great
0: yeah i think they're going to say It was we, before we were recording, we were talking about how I feel like one of the functions of entertainment, of entertainment media, is to, it is an experience that we can share, but we don't affect with our presence. Right. And whatever, you know, we all shine a light into that experience from a different angle, and it's this prismatic thing that, you know, will throw all kinds of light depending on what light you're shining at it and from what angle, but if you can sort of point to that thing and... If you, I think you can point to something like Pantsuit Sasquatch and go, this is the thing that I feel, and here it is articulated. Then other people who feel the same way about it, you are connected to them, even if your experience of that thing is separated by time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And same with jokes. Like, it's... I think... You can take a, a joke out of context, an innocent joke, or a, what is it, pedantic joke, or whatever you called it? Tendentious? Uh, tendentious, yeah. <laughs> I, pedantic jokes. It is a so pedantic yeah, I think joke. It, yeah. Yeah, but I, I think jokes function in a similar way. They're sort of a way to frame an idea, and you can, whether or not we disagree about the either the idea at the center or the way it is framed, we have learned something in even talking about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. We're going to move on to our How Obsessed Are You questions. So uh, these days, do you think about comedy theory every day?
0: I, I probably do, yeah.
1: Yeah, because you're, you're on this sort of uh, intuitive and you're reading a lot.
0: I'm trying to. Kick right now. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out. I know through process of elimination that I don't agree with Freud on certain things. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm just sort of figuring out who Freud's friends are and sort of trying to friend her up my way through, <laughs> through the literature about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do are you watching things in analyzing them for like how they're functioning and what the, what you feel like the joke is really saying?
0: I, I am. And I find I'm like, you know, agreeing with an idea and not agreeing with the approach or the other way around. Like, I okay. appreciate the approach, but the idea, we're kind of, uh. um, like, I really. Uh, like, like for, I think when I think of innocent jokes, I think of Dimitri Martin. Yes, his stand-up because it's a lot of visual puns. Yeah, he just sort of will break the your expectation of what a comedy show is to present the most awkward form of joke to you. <laughs> like, I drew this drawing of a fish, but also it's a bicycle. And right. Anyway, the he's really
1: successful anti-comedy. It's funny because it's not funny.
0: Yeah. And, well, and it's so presentational and awkward in its nature. It's, yeah. 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 Which I am obviously quite drawn to, both (laughs) presentational and awkward.
1: Are you so far enjoying doing that? Like, would you at this point want to go say, I'm going to watch a specific comedy special or sitcom (laughs) and I'm going to go for every joke and go, what is my take on how that is structured and its meaning?
0: No, I think I'm still kind of coming from a place of, like, envy of, like, oh, that, that I wish I'd th- thought of that <laughs> um, kind of thing. And I'm also, not just with comedy, I'm also doing that with music now. I'm looking at, like, well, what is the circle of fifths? What are notes? You know, that kind of thing. Whereas, like, the thing about ukulele is... Um, You know, you can put, there's four strings and four fingers on your hand for most people. Yeah. And so you can put your fingers anywhere and it's probably a chord. And so I just learned how to play ukulele by going plunk, plunk. Oh, there, finally, I found some music. Plunk, plunk. Okay, another shape. And I didn't know the names. And so I've just been (laughs) going completely backwards on it. So yeah, I'm just trying to, it feels like for the sustenance of this career, I should know like, okay, so the things I'm doing, why do they work?
1: Yeah.
2: What are they
0: made of, and why do they work, and how do I keep doing it?
1: The contrast between the complexity of music theory and just put your fingers somewhere and you'll find something is very funny. It's all
2: math, yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Never get a math. Uh, When people walk into your home, can they tell in any way that you're obsessed with comedy theory at this point?
0: Oh, I mean they they could just point at anything and it would indicate some kind of obsession like (laughs) to walk into our house like we've got like a full vr kit and then we have a bunch of like euro style board games and then we have a bunch of vinyl records and a bunch of like synthesizers and there's like 15 ukuleles like (laughs) if comedy theory stood out for any reason i'd be a little concerned okay yeah
1: okay fair enough (laughs) uh would you attend or perform at a convention that was entirely about analyzing comedy
0: um, well, I'm going to Sketchfest in January. Does that count?
1: <laughs> if sketch, imagine you uh, went to a place like Sketchfest that was not just a comedy festival, because, like I said, a ton of comedians hate the concept of analyzing comedy. Mm. If you went to a like. We're going to go do a comedy show and then afterwards we'll all analyze it.
0: <laughs> I'm picturing like a John, like a Telestrator, like the John Madden, like, okay, so see how he, <laughs> boom. And then you weren't expecting a pun. Here is
1: the structural pillar of McRibs, which led to. Yeah. Oh,
0: I think it would entirely depend on who. Like, if we were breaking down, like, say, the original albums of Steve Martin Right. or Carlin or. um. Even like I attached to Jimmy Fallon's stand up album that he did because it was sort of the musical comedy hybrid. So, like, yeah, I would go to like someone's TED talk about like why, why, uh, let's get small as a what is funny about it. Right. I want to know.
1: But that makes sense. That goes with some of the kind of distance that you're talking about is well, uh, just how big comedy is as well. Yeah. But for you, that that analyzing it is to be like comedy is it's plus time and Steve Martin isn't there. Because if Steve Martin was there, you wouldn't want to analyze it.
0: I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be in the same room while a bunch of people explain to Steve Martin why his jokes are funny. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare.
1: I can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, if a presidential candidate demonstrated a firm grasp of comedy theory, would you be more or less likely to vote for them?
0: I mean, <laughs> there's. I would want to know their climate change uh, stance first, probably.
1: <laughs> probably more important. It'd be a fun
0: little tidbit. tidbit of like, ah, oh, Buttigieg actually tried stand-up and yeah, you know, wherever. If go to Buttigieg's in Indiana. I'd be like, yeah, I guess I would, but I don't think I would They'd get my vote. Okay, just for that, it would be a fun tidbit. If
1: just there speak. were, if there were two uh, candidates yeah. who were like neck and neck for you, you agreed with both of their policies. Would just oh, the idea that they are looking at the world through the prism of trying to find function and meaning would yeah. that elevate them in, that in would
0: your actually, esteem? That would be very. That would be a good counter to this presidency, actually, yes. as I think about it. <laughs> like, because have you, have you read um, Emily Nussbaum's article about jokes in, in uh, like, how demagogues use, use jokes to maintain their power?
1: I have, but it's been a little while. Yeah. So I might not remember some of the details.
0: Oh, just the idea that you can, they they basically, they hide behind the defensive space of, like, oh, I was joking. Why, right. why are you taking it so seriously? Um. And so, yeah, if there was a candidate that was calling that out, that would definitely be a mark in their favor.
1: Right, right. And that, that's a really great point, to that... That sometimes I think people just construct jokes without really realizing that they are supporting a certain cultural norm. And then there are other horrific examples where people are basically dog whistling through jokes, right? They just
0: say the most outrageous thing. And then if you get offended, they go, oh, but I was joking.
1: But there, it's kind of a wink and a nod to other people who agree with that thing that they are absolutely intending to say.
0: Yes, that's basically what the article says. So now the okay, doesn't
1: have to read <laughs> Yeah. Uh, is there any kind of comedy theory merch you would want to own? Because that's the way a lot of people express obsessions. Do you want a uh, an Onre Bergson action figure?
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Now that you mention it, I think I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying not to um, express my personality through merch as to the best of my ability just because of lack of space in our house. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, I would definitely get a cocktail, like a coffee table book about comedy theory. Okay. If one were really glossy and okay. a lot of good pictures.
1: <laughs> but still content. Nice. Yeah. Uh, would you ever get a comedy tattoo?
0: Ooh, um, I'm not sure how it would. Um, it'd be interesting to try and figure out how to distill comedy into an image. Yeah, I don't have any tattoos uh, currently. I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, yeah, I um, I'm very choosy about like my tattoo ideas. Okay, so I don't know how how would how if you had to distill a tattoo like a comedy into a an image like an icon yeah. of some kind because I, I don't want to do tattoos with words
1: yeah
2: i
0: don't want you know whatever aliens dig up my body to know what nation i was of
1: yeah i think uh if i could make it aesthetically pleasing i think i would do a straight line in a just super messed up line yeah because there's a part of what comedy theory gives me is just retreating to some of those really weird but comforting reality of we expect everything to go in a straight line because that's our brains work in that way. Yeah. But our brains also see the truth that it's just a big mess and none of us yeah. know we we cling to different meanings, but we don't know. The reality
0: like, is malleable and we don't need malleable and we don't need to take it all yeah. That seriously. Yeah.
1: And it and it goes back to just like why a well executed pratfall is funny or why somebody actually falling on the ice can be really funny mm-hmm. because we don't even realize we've internalized it, but we think like we are we have conquered gravity in our bodies and nothing. can, what? Oh, Jesus! Yeah. Broke my coccyx. Is like that- and that that just contrasts. It. There's like there's a relief and a comfort in. It's a reminder that everything is weird. We're flawed. We yeah. don't always have the control that we think we do. Even something as is, is basic as walking. Yeah. A, a toddler's toy can take the mightiest human down and literally break their ass bone in seconds. And it's it's funny yeah. and it's uh. Comforting, And that to me is what thinking about comedy in that real straightforward contrast, straight line, crazy line, it gives me that comfort.
0: Yeah, no, I like to go back to at the very top of this episode, the uh, load bearing pillars of jokes. It is deeply comforting to think that, you know, Bergson's, you know, we are ghosts in these trapped in these sort of meat suits yeah. that we can't really control completely. <laughs> It's comforting to know that those jokes work because we all agree on that to an extent. Yeah. We all agree like, yeah, it's awkward to have a body. <laughs> <laughs> there's a shimmering humanity that we can't really lose because we're trapped in these meat bones. Yeah. Yeah. Just
1: walking around, slipping on ice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you got stuck in an elevator, how long would it take for comedy theory to come up in conversation?
0: Oh, I mean, oh, in conversation? I'm not sure. I mean, I would definitely be... Just kind of jokes left and right to try and make the other people in the elevator not panic. Right. Because that's what I'm... It's in my bones to do that. Yeah. Um, But I would definitely be in the back of my head going like now is this like what's the load bearing pillar of this joke like or, you know wh- why is it that I can't treat the situation with gravitas and I, I think I would go quicker to like why am I broken and leaning on comedy in this time of crisis like okay. that level of comedy theory yeah
1: okay so you would go to it in your own mind but you wouldn't bring it up with other people
0: yeah I don't think I'd be like let me tell you something about Freud like you know <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: okay that makes a lot of sense because not everybody wants to talk about comedy theory yeah uh, and what
0: if they go oh my favorite's Dane Cook then what can I do I would just <laughs> eat that person before the elevator
1: resumes (laughs) uh i would be happy to see that comedy sketch uh if the only way you could read a book on comedy theory was to steal it from walmart would you do it
0: (laughs) i mean i did i did buy a freud book from amazon which feels pretty similar (laughs) i did feed the megalodon that's eating our planet so (laughs) you fed i would go to some (laughs) full kleptomania maybe not but
1: okay all right if aliens were visiting earth and you got to greet them would you do it by trying to explain comedy to them
0: Oh, I think so. <laughs> I think it does shine a light on, like, why they shouldn't destroy humans. It's like, yeah. look at how we've managed to, you know, there's 7 billion of us, and this is a means by which we have negotiated our differences Yeah, for probably thousands of years, you know. And, you know, babies do it, and we figured out a way to continue to do it. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. I think aliens would think that was awesome. Uh, here's my final how obsessed are you question. Uh, if a mysterious wizard teleported you to the woods and said the secret of comedy was hidden in a random hole in a tree would you stick your hand in the hole
0: <laughs> just one i wouldn't have to search i'd yep. be told definitively here's the boo radley hole in which yep. the comic... here's here's I the mean. hole
1: but you do have to trust a mystery wizard
0: um what would be well what would be gained from that secret Would i know would i get like would i be able to see the code like would i be
1: yeah well i think that's part of the question is you don't you don't know what the secret is but <laughs> Would you be so uh, uh, tempted or curious to know, what could that possibly be?
0: I, I feel like, I feel, like if I knew the answer, I wouldn't be able to enjoy the search. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. That makes sense. So it's more about wanting to preserve the journey.
0: Yeah. And also wanting to get out of the middle of this forest with this <laughs> wizard that I just met.
1: I think that's uh, understandable. <laughs> uh, I ask everyone to make a noise to sum up their obsession. What kind of noise do you have for comedy theory? <laughs>
3: i don't know (laughs) that's all i got i
1: think that's solid uh i ask everyone everyone to give a rating to their obsession as well so on a scale of one to ten uh one being the lowest ten being the highest where would you put yourself right now
0: uh one being the lowest ten being the highest yeah um i would say that i'm based on purely just on my answers to those questions i would say about a 7.5 okay Yeah. yeah i think that's fair yeah Wouldn't bring it up in a life or death situation, but would bring it up to aliens. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You'd bring it up to aliens and you'd shop on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, Well, we have reached the plugging section of the podcast. So why don't you tell people where they can find all of your awesome stuff?
0: Um, Generally, you can go to mollylewis.wtf. Um, because that was a top level domain that was available and mollylewis.com was taken. Um, and you can find me on social media that is all linked on mollylewis.wtf. And when does it go, this go out? this episode? Uh,
1: this will be early December.
0: Okay. Oh, great. So hopefully there will be uh, new content on there by then. Um, if you want to know about buying a, do I want to commit to that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should have uh, information on my upcoming shows and things I have made in the past, including uh, the theme song for this podcast. Yes, uh, and uh, Thanksgiving versus Christmas, which is which contains the Pumpkin Spice song we talked yeah. about, uh, is available on CD, uh, guaranteed to pass time on long drives, uh, and all my social media information should be there. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah.
1: Uh, and I will do a plug for the show that we are doing together. You, you mentioned Sketchfest. Yeah. Ske- Sketchfest. We're going to San Francisco Sketchfest. Uh, and doing a show called Game Night Variety Show. Yeah. Uh, it will be a ton of fun. And here are the quick plugs for the rest of this stuff. And then we'll do our final questions. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram is at Joseph Scrimshaw. You can follow Obsessed Podcast on Twitter and Facebook is at Obsessed Podcast. You can also check out the Star Wars podcast I co-host. That is called Force Center. For info on all my upcoming shows in comedy albums, you can check out my website at josephscrimshaw.com. There is the live shows page, which will have a which has a link right now to the SketchFest show, so go get tickets for that. And finally, you can support Obsessed by backing us on Patreon. Full info on that, go to patreon.com slash josephscramshaw. All right, final weird questions. If every full moon you turned into a wear something, what would you want to turn into?
0: Hmm... What is a uh, what is implied by the wear addition? <laughs> Do I am I uh, am I commute? Is this communicable? Am I in some way infectious? Am I uh, larger yeah, than average?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, infectious is a fun spin. But yeah, if you had to change into uh, an animal, or you could change into a,
0: a chair, piece or, of furniture, yeah.
1: or a, a concept that blows on the wind, mm-hmm. whatever you want to change. Oh, into. I would
0: definitely be a wear raccoon. <laughs> yeah. Like, I live in garbage and eat with my hands anyway. (laughs) It'd be nice to really live that out, be my Patronus for a day.
1: Because the raccoon can still play the ukulele, right?
0: I would think. I would think maybe even better suited. They got little palms and long fingers.
1: <laughs> they can just find, uh, it'll, put, it'll, put their finger somewhere and find a chord, right?
0: It'll be proportional. <laughs> it'll look like a guitar on them.
1: <laughs> that is a beautiful image. Uh, if you could have anything in the world named after you, what would you want it to be? Like an asteroid, a cocktail, a theater, anything?
0: Oh, I mean, I think like a scholarship fund would be cool. Oh, nice, nice.
1: Yeah. Any specific kind of scholarship, like to study music or comedy or?
0: Uh, I would think, I mean. I, I mean, I guess that would be, I'd have to decide what my legacy on this earth would be. Um, Easy job. Yeah. I mean, I would think, mm, that's not the answer I want to stick with. <laughs> um, I think if you uh, have to go to college to, no, I don't want to do that. I would, <laughs> no, I, I would hope for, uh, for songwriting or in, uh, like self-publication, maybe like some sort of start, start your online business. Like okay. here's, you know, get your first LP pressed with the Molly Lewis Memorial. <laughs> Scholarship
1: fund. (laughs) You can be alive while this
3: is happening. Oh, okay,
0: great, cool. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm trying to. uh, uh, Something will be. It would be cool to have my name on a plaque somewhere. Yeah. Even if I had my name on like a you know a bench in the Woodland Park Zoo, that would be dope.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How would you feel if like uh, a theater that you've performed at a lot, like um, say the the Triple Door, right in Seattle, you've performed at a lot? How would you feel if they put up a plaque that just said like Molly Lewis killed here?
0: Just just phrase li- just like that?
1: Exactly that.
0: That would be dynamite.
1: <laughs> because there's some ambiguity there?
0: Yeah, yeah. People people would definitely my SEO would go way up. <laughs> Molly Lewis triple door murder question mark.
1: And then, Age, height, murder. Her
0: website's mollylewis.wtf. Definitely a murderer.
1: <laughs> Final question for everyone on the podcast is what is happiness?
0: Hmm. Talking to a friend for longer than you expected about comedy theory.
1: <laughs> that is a great answer. Thank you so much for doing the podcast.
0: <laughs> Thank you for having me.
1: That is our podcast.
0: You've been listening to Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest. Rate five stars if you're impressed. <laughs>